Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Jen D'Angelo is a comedian, actress, and screenwriter in Los Angeles. Originally from the Philly area, she graduated from Northwestern University before heading to L.A. and joining the UCB system as a writer and performer. Her stand-up credits include appearances on At Midnight, Last Call with Carson Daly, and Adam Devine's House Party. D'Angelo also worked with Devine as a performer, writer, story editor, and producer on Workaholics. She has similarly pulled double duty in front of and behind the camera on Cougar Town and Young Rock. Since the start of the pandemic, D'Angelo has really come into her own as a feature film screenwriter, scripting Hocus Pocus 2 for Disney+, Totally Killer for Amazon Prime Video, and Quiz Lady for Hulu. And during the Writers Guild strike of 2023, D'Angelo often went viral on social media for deconstructing the disparities in show business today. She sat down with me over Zoom to talk about how she got where she is and where comedy writers and comedy films might go from here. There's a lot to get to, so let's get to it! Jen D'Angelo, first off, congratulations. You have not one, but two movies that are threatening Gordon Ramsay at every moment. <laughs> yes, that's my life goal, is to just defeat Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that doesn't really apply to Totally Killer, which is the movie you wrote, which is on Amazon Prime Video, but it does apply to Quiz Lady, which is running up the charts on Hulu. Yes, I know, yeah. We have to find something that Gordon Ramsay has on Amazon and try to topple that. <laughs> so last things first, Jen, I know about your, the beef that you have started, so to speak, with, <laughs> with Chef Ramsay, thanks to your social media presence. I also know that you have been very inspirational in leading the troops of the WGA through this uh, momentous year in screenwriting. Yeah. So let me ask you, where were you in 2007 the last time the writers went through this. I was in college and I remember sort of being aware of the writer's strike because I was, I went to Northwestern and I was studying screenwriting. And so that's like a very, they're very tapped into entertainment at Northwestern because there's so many of us out here. Um, And yeah, so I remember like professors talking about it and I was Uh, That was the height of my, you know, 30 Rock and The Office fandom. I guess it wasn't the height. It's because it has never dipped. I'm still a super (laughs) fan of both of those shows. But I remember watching the dinner party episode of The Office and being like, the strike has ended. Finally, The Office is back. So I was sort of following along from the sidelines for the 2007 strike. So did you already know you, you wanted to be a screenwriter then? Since you said you were studying that at the time at the Northwestern. Yeah. I wanted to be a writer basically my whole life. When I was seven, I wrote a story about my family dog meeting an elf. Uh, It was called Briars Meets an Elf. And I truly was like, I am a novelist. (laughs) I want to be the youngest published author in the world. And then (laughs) that sort of slowly transitioned into comedy, which then transitioned into screenwriting. And so, yeah, I went to college knowing that that's what I wanted to do. And you're Uh from the Philadelphia area. Is that correct? Yeah, just outside Philly from the main so, line. So knowing you're from Philly, knowing that you are a 30 Rock fan, were you set upon following in the footsteps of Tina Fey or more Christine Nangle? 
I mean, I love Christine Engel and I'm jealous of her ability to do a really good Philly accent. Mine is not good. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was obsessed with Tina Fey, obviously. And I almost, <laughs> speaking of college, uh, I was torn between Northwestern and UVA and the like basically one of the big reasons that I wanted to go to UVA was that's where Tina Fey went and I was just like if I want to be exactly like Tina Fey (laughs) ultimately chose the other one okay so so you chose Northwestern instead but then after Northwestern you chose UCB and not Boom Chicago yeah well I auditioned for Boom Chicago and did not get in (laughs) oh okay um but, but yeah but you know what they say when one door closes another opens so exactly and yeah I thought about staying in Chicago to do like try to do Second City but ultimately I was just like if I don't go out to LA right now I don't think I ever will so came right out here and yeah started at UCB okay yeah and uh you wrote for Nicole Byer for UCB before you wrote for her for MTV yeah I actually didn't write on that show I was just acting on it Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I played her, her dumb friend. <laughs> but yeah, we were on a sketch team at UCB together, where I was a writer and she was an actor. Um, so we had known each other for a while. Well, that I guess leads into the question I actually want to ask instead, which is: for a little while, you were on both paths, the writer path and the performer path. Yeah. Was there, was there a push and pull inside of you? as to which you really were, or was it more coming from outside, from agents and managers in the business going, you're a performer. No, you're a writer. No, you're a performer. Yeah. It's an internal push-pull that persists to this day, I would say. (laughs) It's interesting because I, being on Nicole's show, it was so fun and I had a blast and it was so great to get to work with Nicole and Jacob Oisaki, who's another UCB friend. And everyone on that show was so great. But that was sort of when I realized like, oh, I really enjoy acting, but I really feel like I'm a writer at heart. And so that was when I sort of made the decision to kind of let acting go a little bit, but hold on to a small part of it because I enjoy sort of like popping in and doing you know, a small character in something that I wrote. And so that's sort of what I've been doing. Like I played a small role in Young Rock, which I wrote on, and that was so fun. And then I was supposed to play a small role in Quiz Lady, but I got COVID and couldn't. No. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So you can't do the uh, Alfred Hitchcock, Martin Scorsese thing where you have this little cameo in everything you do. I know. Yeah. It's been, it's been thwarted, but Mm. I'll find it. I feel like I can maybe find another one. There's a picture of my family dog in Quiz Lady. So maybe that could be the new Alfred Hitchcock. There's just a picture of this golden retriever and everything I do. Okay. <laughs> During the this year's WGA strike, one of the things that came up time and time again was wanting to ensure that there's still a path for the new writers to go up the ladder, as it were. How did you feel it worked for you? Because I know you, you did make those steps, right? From like producer, supervising producer, story editor, yeah. executive story editor. How is totally. that process yeah. for you to go through? I describe it as trying to climb a ladder as quickly as possible while every rung disappears behind you <laughs> uh, is really what it felt like because I feel like I got in, my first writing job was on Cougar Town when it had moved over to TBS from ABC. So I was on season five of Cougar Town. Okay. And that was in 2013. 
And so already, you know, people were kind of seeing the writing on the wall of this massive shift and, you know, things were getting shorter orders and, you know, there were kind of fewer jobs, but there was still very much like a pilot season, a staffing season. There was still sort of the hallmarks of stability in this very unstable career. So yeah, I remember I got my first job on Cougar Town. It was the best job ever. Everyone was incredible. And then when that show ended, I remember feeling like that felt like a fluke that I got that job. I just felt so lucky. And I knew that I would have, you know, a couple months until staffing season started. And so I went back to my paid internship at a production company (laughs) that I was doing before I got staffed just because I was so, you know, scared of what the future would hold. But then, yeah, I kept getting onto TV shows and that they would do like one season and be abruptly canceled. (laughs) And then I would bounce around and then I got to workaholics and I was there for two seasons. So I had these sort of like life rafts that I was jumping from, just sort of turning around and seeing that they weren't there anymore. It was very sad. Yeah. And then when I wanted to transition into features from TV, that was, you know, I, a show had been canceled, so I wasn't working at the time. And I was just like, okay, I'm going to write a feature sample to try to get into those rooms and have those meetings. And that's, you know, just another part of this writing career that is being threatened where it's, you know, it's a career that's very much feast or famine. And it sort of naturally has to be that way because there's a lot of free work that you just have to do in order to get writing jobs. You need to prove Mm -hmm. that you can write. You need to come up with ideas. There's all this stuff that you have to do. And so the fact that I was able to have this relatively stable, even though it was very unstable, TV career to kind of learn the ropes, learn how to be on set, learn what production is, how to really write for, you know, screenwriting and having that path allowed me to kind of break into feature writing. And so that's why I'm so passionate about trying to preserve like some semblance of lower level writing jobs that people can have and learn on and not just have to learn on their own for free. Did you have the sense when you made that pivot to feature writing that that would at least have a little bit more stability? It's so interesting because I actually feel like movie writing is riskier TV writing. It's at least like, okay, I have like a guaranteed number of weeks that I'm going to be on the show and sure they might cancel it out of nowhere. But once you have an episode order, you're, you know, reasonably secure for that episode order. Although that's obviously changing more and more as studios are getting even more uh, bullish about just throwing things in the trash. (laughs) But with screenwriting, you know, there's this sense that the screenwriter is for movies, mm-hmm. you know, in some ways, they're kind of the most disposable part. Like it's very, very common to just be hired to write a draft, you turn it in and they're just like, thank you so much. We're going to give it to somebody else. So yeah, screenwriting feels a little more unstable, I would say. So why, so why do that then? Why do that I to yourself? Movies. I know. I Well, that's a great question that I ask I mean, myself every day. Why did I do this to myself? I mean, was Solar Opposites so horrible that you had to do that? No. Solar was so sad. I was so sad to leave. I loved Solar. Uh, it was incredible. But yeah, that was that was a real moment where I had to choose between going back to Solar Opposites for another season or I got an opportunity to be an onset writer for The Tomorrow War, which was this like $170 million, like huge Chris Pratt sci-fi movie. And so I was like, damn, I really have to choose between movies and TV right in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was so hard. 
but I went to go be on set because now I ultimately I'm really interested in directing movies. And so getting to have that onset experience was invaluable. Now for a young screenwriter, you've, you've, you have had a a nice string of, of success. Yeah, I know. You have three three features already. Uh, (laughs) The first, but the first one you wrote was, was the last one to come out. Uh, yeah. Wasn't the quiz quiz lady your first one? Yeah. Quiz lady. I wrote, yeah. I can't remember when I finished the first draft, but I definitely started it before Hocus Pocus. Um, and then that has a personal pull for you because it was based on your relationship with your brother. Correct. Yeah. Very loosely. I would say, uh, to be fair to him, (laughs) but well, you're not Asian immigrants and yes, exactly. But yeah, he's a Jeopardy whiz and it's my life goal to get him on Jeopardy. But yeah, that was a personal story that I just started writing just for me. How important do you think it was for you that the first feature that you were able to write and get get seen by people was a giant franchise with Hocus Pocus 2? I mean, I feel like I just lucked out. <laughs> so much. I mean, any successful career in show business is a combination of talent, hard work, and luck. And sometimes you have a ton of one of those and, <laughs> you know, it's always balanced. But I feel like I got very, very lucky with Hocus Pocus because it was, you know, it was very high risk, high reward. If that had, you know, not been embraced by the fans, that would have been really terrible. But um, mm-hmm. the fact that it was, I feel like, yeah, I mean... It's so hard to know what tangible effect anything has on your career, especially now that, you know, all of the data is just shrouded in this mystery and you have no idea like how successful anything actually is. And so to be able to, you know, have this big thing and be able to say like, yes, I wrote that and, you know, people have heard of it and it, you know, people talked about it. That is a huge gift and it's increasingly rare in this world. So so how do you measure success other than whether or not Hulu has you and has your movie in front of <laughs> Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares, how do you measure success? For, I really don't for know. any of your for any of your movies. Yeah, I honestly have no idea. I mean, I I'm a film nerd. I love Letterboxd, and so I will look at Letterboxd and okay. see people are watching it and. Yeah, just that. And then arbitrarily picking Gordon Ramsay as a marker of success and trying to beat him in the Hulu top 15. Those are sort of the only (laughs) things that you have. And I mean, eventually you sort of get some sense. I think they eventually have to tell you some performance metrics, but it is very much just sort of you're in a little black box and you're sort of hoping that people see it and like it. Does the new contract help at all in in those respects in terms of knowing what's going on? I think it will in some sense. I mean, I think any step towards them having to disclose, like needing to disclose the data is a huge step because we can obviously build upon that in future negotiations. But yeah, I mean, they at least have some arbiter of when they have to tell us how many people have watched it. Mm-hmm. So we'll at least have that. Yeah. You've also, with each of your movies, they're with a different studio, a different platform. And it's my understanding mm-hmm. you've even worked with other platforms other than those three. Yeah. Right? yeah I have a couple uncredited ones out there. Yeah. <laughs> it, is it, 
without burning any bridges <laughs> um, is it is it easier to deal with with one platform over the others or I haven't are there, are there are there tangible let me put it this way yeah. are there tangible differences between the platforms um, in terms of trying to sell and make and release and distribute not a, that a I've, comedy movie in these days yeah I mean not that I've noticed it's it's a little bit comparing apples and oranges because for like quiz lady for example I was a producer so I was way more involved with that process, whereas Hocus Pocus uh, and Totally Killer, I was, you know, a hired writer. So I definitely, you know, it's possible that there are differences that I just wasn't uh, privy to. But from my perspective, it really feels like, you know, they're all sort of the same. Everyone is, everyone is navigating this very turbulent time. And so everyone is just kind of doing their best. That's the main feeling across all of these platforms is that everyone is doing their best. <laughs> okay, so with Quiz Lady, though, as a producer, you could get more involved with, say, the casting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we were weighing in on casting. I was really involved during post. It was really fun to be able to sort of get to see that element of it. Post-production is such an important part of filmmaking. You're basically making the movie again. Um, and so that was incredible to see. But yeah, it was so incredible to be able to weigh in on these casting lists which was also so surreal because it was just like the second they were like do you want to what about jason schwartzman for ron i was just like that's the best question i've ever heard in my life <laughs> just every name that was tossed out i was like oh my god uh and i can't believe we got them we were so lucky although working with gloria sanchez it was probably a little bit easier to find a role for will ferrell <laughs> it, that was uh yeah that was easier. But yeah, that was another just incredible best sentence I've ever heard in my life was that they were like, Will is interested in playing the game show host. I was like, oh my God. Because <laughs> he had obviously already been attached as a producer. So he was already involved. But then when he wanted to get more involved, I truly could not believe the luck. Well, that's a vote of approval. Yeah. Saying, I really believe in this movie. I want to put my face in it. Totally. And it was also just, I mean... He's the absolute best. And, you know, he's like my personal Terry McTeer. <laughs> so to have him step into that role was just so amazing. I don't think anyone else could have done it like him. One of the things, you know, I, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you also is because you're kind of in the forefront of writing and, and making comedy movies in 2023 is wondering where comedy movies are headed especially now that at least the writer's strike is over the actors. I don't want to, I don't want to put my cart before any horses yeah. on the actors at, at this moment that we're talking right this second. But I kind of want, I hear so many people trying to say that you can't make a comedy movie anymore, but you've, you've written and in, in seen three make it to the screens, albeit they're on streaming platforms and not in the, in the cinema so you don't get to see the box office receipts and yeah. all that. What's... Or see it with a big crowd, which is the saddest part, because they're yeah. they should be seen with crowds. Yeah. So that's one aspect of it that's different now. What do you see for the future of comedy movies? I don't know. I'm hoping I'm hoping that just sort of in general with the industry, now that we've gone through, I mean, yes, again, we don't know what's going on with the SAG strike at this very moment, but now that we've gotten through the writer's strike, at least, and we've sort of had this reckoning 
And also the companies are having their own kind of reckoning with sort of realizing that it's important for a business to be profitable. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> now that we've sort of, you know, stopped the runaway train that the entertainment industry had been since kind of, you know, 2016, uh, 2015, basically ever since Netflix started making their own stuff. Now that we've stopped it, I feel like we'll naturally just have to make things make sense again. Um, and I think that will mean making hopefully slightly smaller movies and really taking more time to craft them and make sure that they're coming from a place of like, this is a story that we want to tell. It's not just a brand that we want to expand. And so I think that coupled with the fact that we're going through an extremely difficult and dark time in the world. And I think people will be craving just a little bit of more escapism and just sort of something that can make you feel good and just be a little brief respite from everything that you're seeing just on the news and social media. And so I'm hoping that those two things combined will mean that people are more excited about comedy. And I also think that it'll mean that comedy, you know, has to have a little bit something extra. Like it's got to have a little heart or like a little something that makes it feel timely. I think it like pure escapism, I feel like is not what we want right now, but some, you know, sense of like, I, I feel like I, these people, <laughs> I feel like I'm watching a movie that like reflects where I'm at and is making me feel better about it rather than uh, something that's just sort of could have been made at any time, anywhere. So I think I'm excited. I feel like it's, you know, a very chaotic and turbulent time. And, you know, the industry is going to continue to contract. But I have some hope that it will mean that people have to get more creative with what they're making and that that'll lead to better stuff. Right. So I guess... Hearing, hearing what you just said, maybe I'm, maybe I'm even thinking about comedy movies incorrectly because I'm thinking about the comedy movies that I grew up with in the 1980s, which is entirely different from comedies that you grew up with in the 2000s or the comedies that, that Gen Z really wants or needs to see and support on screen today. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, with Gen Z, like... You know, I hate to talk about Gen Z as a block just because I still have residual trauma as a millennial and just like <laughs> reading all these articles when I'm fresh out of college about how I'm a problem and, you know, I single-handedly destroyed the world as a millennial. So I hate to talk about that, Gen but Z. But those were boomers saying that. Those exactly. Were the, they were just, they were trying to deflect blame. Exactly. Look over here. <laughs> the call's coming from inside the house, boomers. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, Young people, obviously, they've grown up in this age of, you know, be, having so much awareness of what's going on in the world because they ha have access to all this information and firsthand accounts of things that are happening in other parts of the world. And also just injustices and, you know, seeing sort of the climate change hens come home to roost. Like they've, that's been their entire life is just watching all of these problems just get worse and worse and worse. And so I think they are very much, and I feel this way too, where, you know, you're just sort of <laughs> thinking like, 
God, like I am so aware of everything that's going on in the world. And uh, when I watch something um, that is made, that was made presently, but feels like it is not aware of all of this other stuff the way that I am, it just feels like a little hollow, I think. And so I think that's why, you know, things like Bottoms and Barbie, like they've done really well because I think they're comedies, but they have something extra to them. They have a message, they have a point. Um, and I think that's really cool. And so I think if we keep leaning into that, you know, that could maybe be the future of comedy. Yeah. When I asked Judd Apatow about this the other day, he reminded me that, well, Barbie was the number one movie this year. So obviously people will go see a comedy movie. Yeah. But at the same time, we don't seem to be making new comedy stars, right? Like Barbie is Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling. Bottoms, yeah. which I loved, I totally loved and laughed at. And, you know, it's got Rachel and, and Io. How, how do we get these people to be the next, or if not those two, how do we get, how do we mint these, these new comedy stars that perhaps are coming out of UCB or, or not? Totally. I mean, that's, that's the real question. I'm also like Olivia Holt and Kiernan Shipka from Totally Killer. I'm like, they deserve to be uh, in the conversation of rising comedy stars. They're amazing. I mean, that whole cast was incredible. But yeah, I mean, I think it's hard because I think right now studios, or at least leading up to now, who knows, who knows what the industry is now, but um <laughs> recently I think studios have been scared to really invest in comedy. So when they are doing it, it's just like, you know, we need this to cost as little money as possible. We need to lower this risk immensely. And so that will naturally, you know, limit who you can get. And uh, I think hopefully like with Barbie, I think the good lesson that the industry could take away from it is, wow, we gave this director who we really believed in and a star that we really believed in. We gave them a budget to really accomplish what they, their vision. And, you know, the fact that they were able to, that set design, the production design of Barbie is a stunning achievement. I mean, I hope they get the Oscar. They deserve it. But the fact that they had over, over the wall of bow ties. (laughs) <laughs> we're only uh eligible for emmys so we'll take the emmy for production design um, <laughs> yeah that's one of the many just weird parts of this industry is that it's just like yeah we made a movie but it's tv the fact that greta gerwig and margot robbie were able to demand the budget that something like that cost and that they mm-hmm. weren't just being like nickel and dime to death i mean i'm sure they they were in their own sense but um you know, it proves that if you really invest in these things that you believe in, <laughs> rather than just trying to make everything cost as little as possible because you have to make 800 things and they all have to be out in one second, <laughs> then you can get something really, really special. And when you have something really special, people want to come see it. And so I think I'm hoping that that's the lesson that we take from Barbie and not just any toy will make you a billion dollars at the box office. Right. <laughs> see. So, so based on everything we just said, what, what are you hopeful for with the movies that you have yet to write or are currently working on? I mean, I am working on a movie right now that I want to direct. And so 
knowing that and knowing that, you know, a first time director is always a tricky thing for people. I am writing it in, with that in mind and wanting to keep it, you know, relatively low budget, um, which sort of naturally made it, you know, a little bit more contained. And it's really fun to try to write something that feels big and timely and is really funny, but is also contained. And that's been a really interesting challenge, but it's also just sort of made me go back to the very simple fact that I feel like we've kind of forgotten and gotten away from is that we love movies because we love characters. Like we, (laughs) we, you know, we love Indiana Jones. We love Elle Woods. We love like these huge characters that were just, I love that those are the only two examples I can think of in this moment. (laughs) From the history of cinema, Indiana Jones and Elle Woods. (laughs) Indiana Jones and Legally Blonde. Yeah. Now I'm just on a Reese Witherspoon kick because I'm like, Tracy Flick. Uh, You know, I think it's it's forced me to come back to, you know, if I'm going to make this thing that is about all of these big themes and it's about the end of the world, but it's a comedy uh, and it's about polarization and just people getting entrenched in their own beliefs, but also a comedy you know, the way to make it feel big is to just make these characters really juicy so that they're attractive to actors and just, yeah, getting back to the fundamentals of just storytelling and character stuff is what I'm really excited about. And if that means that, you know, we can't have constant explosions or hand-painted sets, that's okay. But hopefully we'll, hopefully I'll earn my way up to hand-painted sets and explosions (laughs) well the wall of bow ties is just as nice yes the hall of bow ties is truly incredible that the production design quiz lady that was all jeff mann and he is truly amazing uh and i was very starstruck by him because i love tropic thunder which he also did yes he did a truly amazing job with the quiz lady and just making that whole game show set and making it feel like this thing that started in the 90s but has slowly evolved a little bit over the years that he did such an incredible job. Well, Jen D'Angelo, thank you so much for not only writing movies that allow us to escape the real world for an hour and a half at a time, but also for your Instagram posts and everything <laughs> that, that helps us understand why we need to root for people like you to keep thank doing you. this. It's, oh my it's, gosh, thank you so much. Um, I appreciate the kind words about Instagram because I really felt so self-conscious every time I posted one. <laughs> um, so I'm glad they resonated. <laughs> Uh, they kept showing up in my feed. I had no choice. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry in that case. <laughs> no, yeah, thank you and thank you. And you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> this episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Bye.